Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick Anderson. I'm going to play an interview for you in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to do a little introduction just to set the stage. My guest today was trained and steeped in the 12-step model for sex addiction, which is considered by some to be pathologizing rather than sex positive. She was working in this arena using the 12-step model, the classic Patrick Carnes model of sexual compulsivity, and it wasn't feeling like it exactly aligned with her values and her notions and beliefs about sexuality. So she was searching for a different approach, a different model. And in her research, she came across the work of Douglas Braun Harvey and Michael Vigorito, who offered their own idea of working with out-of-control sexual behavior with men, and they came up with their model, the OCSB model. My guest fell in love with the model, but realized it really was geared toward men, and she was determined to tweak the model so that it could be applicable and helpful for women as well. So my guest has been using this model and trying to tailor it for women who are seeking therapeutic support for what they consider to be out of control sexual behavior. But in working with these women, my guest realized that many of them come in believing that they are so-called sex addicts, but she noticed that this belief was often in reaction to certain gender stereotypes and beliefs about female sexuality that are steeped in history. She tries to tease out what are the actual out-of-control sexual behaviors and what might be reactions to certain cultural messages about women and sexuality in general. She's identified four major lenses within which to frame a woman's sexual behavior and concerns. She's going to explain these four areas in my upcoming interview, which I will share with you momentarily. I thought it might be fun to offer some context to her premise by highlighting how throughout history, women have often been hostage to political, social, religious, and economic climates. As I have mentioned before, and will likely mention again, Sexuality has fascinated people throughout history. At times, it has been celebrated and revered. At other times, it has been taboo and the source of many negative connotations. Religion, philosophy, and legal systems have all tried to establish sexual values. And things like illness, aggression, Psychiatric disorders and even the rise and fall of cultures have all been explained by either too much or too little sex. 
sex has gone from being perceived as procreational to relational to recreational. Before 1000 BC, there was a taboo already strongly established against incest. Women were considered property with productive and sexual value. Men were free to have many partners and prostitution was widespread and accepted. In ancient Greece, there was tolerance and enthusiasm for homosexuality. Adult males often engaged with sexual activity with adolescent males. There was considered a sort of educational or mentor relationships where men were responsible for a boy's moral and intellectual development. Adult homosexuality was less accepted than adult adolescent sexuality, and sex with prepubescent boys was considered illegal. Women had no more rights than slaves, and they were subject to absolute authority of their next of kin male, whether that was their father or their husband or their brother. When Christianity came on the world scene, there was a separation of carnal love versus spiritual love. There was a denial of worldly pleasures for pure spirituality. The notion of celibacy came onto the scene. St. Paul said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but it is better to marry than to burn. St. Augustine at the end of the fourth century said, I muddied the stream of friendship with the filth of lewdness and clouded its clear waters with hell's black river of lust. There was a belief that sexual lust came from the downfall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and that women were not to be trusted and were temptresses out to manipulate men with their sexual wiles. In the Islamic, Hindu, and Buddhist religions, sexual attitudes were much more positive than in Christianity. In the Hindu religion, almost anything in the realm of sexuality received approval. By the end of the 4th century, the Kama Sutra had been published, and it detailed sexual positions in graphic and illustrative uh, pictures. In China and Japan, there were similar sexual manuals that glorified sexual pleasure and variety. In ancient China, sex was not to be feared. Rather, it was seen as an act of worship. In Europe, during the 12th and 13th centuries, the early Christian traditions regarding sex became deeply entrenched as the church assumed greater power. Theology and common law were synonymous. Sex was for procreation only. There was a distinction between upper and lower class. The upper class implemented what was called courtly love, where women were elevated to an immaculate plane and romanticized. Secrecy and valor were celebrated in song, poetry, and literature. Pure love was seen as incompatible with fleshly temptations. Couples laid in bed together naked to see if they could refrain from intercourse unconsummated love was in chastity belts came on the scene you could literally lock up your wife just as you locked up your money a metal framework that stretched between women's legs from front to back and were quite heavy 
These chastity belts had two holes to allow for waste elimination, but no penetration. There was a rebirth of humanism and arts in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, and the restrictions loosened. The ideal of courtly love went away. During the Protestant Reformation led by Martin Luther and John Calvin, there were less negative attitudes towards sex than the Catholic Church. They believed sex was not inherently sinful and chastity and celibacy were not virtues. In colonial America, the Puritan ethic ruled. Sex outside of marriage was condemned. Premarital sex and adultery were crimes. People were flogged, put in pillories or stocks, and forced to make public confessions if they engaged in sex out of wedlock. We all remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. During the American frontier and Western expansion in the 1820s and 1830s, there was again a loosening of sexual restrictions. Prostitution became commonplace. Groups were formed to combat social evils of prostitution and save fallen women. During a three-year period in the 1840s, the U.S. government prosecuted 351 brothels in Massachusetts alone. Just prior to the Civil War, you could purchase a guidebook listing fashionable brothels in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Back in Europe in the mid-1800s, the Victorian era began. This was a period of reserve and prudery that had resurfaced, but it was less connected to religious edict and more connected to morality. The spirit of Victorianism represented repression and modesty necessitated by the presumed purity of women and children. Sensibilities during that time were so delicate that people censored their speech to limit triggering sexual thoughts or images. It was considered indelicate to offer a lady a leg of lamb. Clothing styles adopted the same sensibility, not even a glimpse of an ankle or a bare neck, let alone cleavage. Piano legs were covered with crinolines because, God forbid, a man might see a piano leg and become aroused. Books written by opposite-sex authors could not even be next to each other on a shelf unless the authors were married. It was considered improper to do so. There was a sexual underground of pornographic writings and pictures, similar to temperance and gun control. Whenever something is made illegal or taboo, there's almost always an underground movement. And for uh, the Victorian era, pornography was no exception. Science and medicine also reflected an anti-sexualism. Masturbation was deemed a source of brain damage insanity, blindness, and more. At the end of the 19th century, German psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing classified sexual disorders. In 1886, he published his classic book, which sits proudly on my shelf to this day, called Psychopathia Sexualis. There have been 12 editions. He advocated for the sympathetic medical concern for sexual perversions and reform in laws dealing with sexual crimes. He described primarily paraphilias, including sadomasochism, fetishism, bestiality, 
cannibalism, and necrophilia, and is often considered the founder of modern sexuality. You may have thought that title went to Sigmund Freud, but Kraft Ebbing's work actually preceded the work of Sigmund Freud and his psychosexual development. Sigmund Freud demonstrated the central importance of sexuality to the human existence. He captured this more successfully than anyone before or since. He believed that sex was the primary force in the motivation of all human behavior and the principal cause of all forms of neuroses. He clearly established existence of sexuality in infants and children and proposed his now famous theory of psychosexual development. Freud's most innovative concepts include number one, the Oedipal complex, number two, castration anxiety, and number three, penis envy. These concepts have become so commonplace that I'm not even going to explain them because I assume that you've all heard of the Oedipal complex, castration anxiety, and penis envy. A funny story really quickly, when I was preparing to give a presentation at a medical conference in Sweden um, called The Prolific Penis, its prowess, protuberance, and other particulars. was quite proud of the alliteration there. Um, I was reading all sorts of books on, on male sexuality and, and the penis. And one of my sons, who was about 10 or 11 years old at the time, he said to me, Mom, you're never going to have one. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, a penis. You're never going to have one. Just get over it. You seem obsessed with it. It was very funny. He was obviously projecting um, penis envy onto me, assuming that I was reading these books because I really, really wanted to have a penis. It was very funny. Um, Freud suggested that these three concepts, Oedipal complex, castration anxiety, and penis envy are all operating at unconscious levels. By the end of World War I, there were three important shifts. One was the increased social and economic freedom for women. Two was the availability of the automobile. And three, changes in fashion, dance, music, and literature. Women became involved for the first time professionally in sexual revolution uh, that was brewing. You may have heard of Margaret Sanger, who was the leader in the birth control movement. Catherine Davis conducted surveys on the sex lives of 2,200 women. And these were published as a series of scientific articles. When the Great Depression hit in 1929, the concern for food and shelter took precedence over sex. When World War II began, the country was obviously distracted by the war and the focus on sex again dissipated. During the post-World War II era, Alfred Kinsey, who was actually a zoologist at Indiana University, was asked to help teach a course on marriage in 1938. He was struck by the lack of scientific data regarding human sexuality, and so he gave out questionnaires to his students that he drafted himself. After interviewing 12,000 men and women around the country, he published his classic book, sexual behavior in the human male in 1948. He followed that with sexual behavior in the human female in 1953. Kinsey reported that 37% of men 
have had um, some homosexual experience to orgasm past puberty. He reported that 40% of husbands are unfaithful and that 62% of women had tried masturbation. Now think back to the 1940s and 1950s. These proclamations were extremely scandalous and controversial. In the aftermath of Kinsey, there was an era of sexual confusion. Premarital sex became more commonplace. You may remember the classic book, Peyton Place, which described some form of promiscuity. Music started to depict sexual themes. In the 1950s, women were expected to be glamorous, but brainless. Think Marilyn Monroe. In the 1960s, of course, there was a sexual revolution. Three important things happened in the 60s. Birth control pills became available and made premarital sex safer and um, more accessible. There was a protest movement sort of in the air. There was the civil rights movement. There was the anti-war demonstration. There was make love, not war. Sex was considered um, healthy. And uh, there was a movement to depathologize, destigmatize sex and celebrate sex and internalize a sex positive mentality. Also, the emergence of feminism in its modern form was born in the 1960s. Female sexuality was finally accepted as a natural and healthy aspect of life. I'm sure you've heard of Masters and Johnson. Um, He was a physician. She was a behavioral scientist. They met at Washington University Medical School in St. Louis. They were really the first people to add anatomy and physiology to the mix of studying sexuality. They actually conducted laboratory investigations beginning in 1954. By 1965, more than 10,000 episodes of sexual activity had been observed and documented by Masters and Johnson, and they published their hallmark book, Human Sexual Response, in 1966. Another classic book is The Joy of Sex by Alex Comfort, which was published in 1972. Many of the women that I treat who grew up in the 70s recall getting this book um, as a uh, bridal gift or from their mother prior to their honeymoon. Um, And it's an oldie but a goodie and another book that is proudly displayed on my shelf. Um, certain trends emerged. There was a a loosening around cohabitation and people felt free to live together without being married. There was also the legalization of abortion in 1973 with the Hallmark Supreme Court case Roe versus Wade. In 1974, there was a decision to remove homosexuality as a mental disorder from the DSM. There was a growing awareness of significance around sexual victimization, the creation of rape crisis centers, uh, for example, um, occurred during that time. There was also uh, an explosion in innovative reproductive technology. The first test tube baby was um, born in 1978 
and suddenly you could get um, a surrogate mother uh, to carry your baby and these innovations in medicine and technology opened up opportunities for women in many, many ways. In the late 70s and early 80s, as with many trends, they swing from right to left. There was a conservative backlash. You may have heard of the moral majority and groups such as right to life. So these are just a few examples of how sexuality over the years has changed, has impacted women's status, women's financial power, and a woman's control over her own body. I think this introduction will add richness to my interview, and I am going to play that for you now. So let's get sex savvy. I'm very happy today to introduce my guest. Her name is Jess Levitt. She's a therapist in Oakland, California, specializing in out-of-control sexual behavior with a particular interest and focus on treating women. Jess, thank you for coming on Sex Savvy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by just explaining to my listeners what out-of-control sexual behavior is and how you diagnose that? In my practice, I really try to err on the side of not over-pathologizing. So the person coming in is already in a lot of pain, and I don't want to heap you now have a disorder on top of that. So what I do is, and what with OCSB, we let the client come in and, and they say, usually I have a client come in and say, uh, I'm a sex addict. And I, my first question is, what does that mean? Breaking it down. And with OCSB, it's not about beha- specific behaviors or frequency. It's really about what's feeling out of control for that person. What I noticed about the women coming in with OCSB is this through line of women coming in having internalized gender stereotypes. In other words, they are coming in thinking they have out-of-control sexual behavior oftentimes because of how they have been taught explicitly and implicitly how a woman should be um, sexually. So a lot of what I'm working with when I'm working with women, before we even get to what feels like the out of control thoughts, behaviors, and feelings, we start with what does this look like for you and how might this be influenced by societal norms and internalized stereotype? You know, when I sometimes talk about this, I talk about it as puritanical hypocrisy, Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Because it's, I mean, the message is you must be both at the same time, the whore and the Madonna. Exactly. When I'm working with women, as far as translating this book, I'm just going to be doing case examples essentially with women instead of men as I go through this model. And as I was doing research, because I've been doing a lot of research on cisgendered women's sexuality throughout history. And if you start doing that and going down that rabbit hole, you start noticing very quickly that most of the research and assessment and treatment, it's all been created by men. Right. And so I think there should be an element when you're working with women of a women's consciousness to balance the scales. 
So as I go through this history, I'm starting to do more research on, well, what do women have to say about this at these different times in history? You're really looking at it from a historical and cultural perspective. Yes, yes. And in this narrative that that was really cemented back in when the church came along, the Christian church came along, laid down the foundation of women's worth is correlated with their ability to be a mother and a good wife and non-sexual. <laughs> and so... Um, all at the same time. <laughs> all at the same time, Yes. Doing all of that history and the research on women's sexuality, what I noticed were certain landmark points that have influenced how women internalize these gender stereotypes. I just want to throw out there that this is all a work in progress. So this is by no means something that I am presenting as a finished product. Um, I'm just so excited about this topic that I want to start disseminating information <laughs> um, and having people think about it and contribute. These are four notable categories that women have struggled with sexually throughout history. The first is birth control. That involves the pill, abortion, and forced sterilization. The line is the levels at which women and their sexuality are affected by the investment people have in who decides if conception leads to birth. And so how does that affect a woman going into a sexual relationship? If she doesn't have control over the outcome of, of what might happen. So if we're talking about just power over your own body, an example of this in a clinical setting would be, there are some women who don't seriously consider the repercussions of having sex uh, or actively trying to get pregnant in order to maintain an attachment. There's women who, because they are so deeply wanting to be with that person, they are willing to risk unprotected sex, even if they don't want to have a child because of their partner. And so this is all about the reproductive choice and control. The next point would be sexual imagery or pornography and this idea of self-pleasure. When you're thinking about women and pornography, it's not really an allegation that most porn is made for heterosexual men. It's just a fact. Although there has been this movement of feminist porn, which is real pleasure for women in an ethical workplace and women aren't coerced, it's still um, challenging the stereotypes of female sexuality. And also a lot of women are now looking towards this sexual imagery as sexual education, as opposed to this is entertainment. And when women are coming in and they're talking about, I'm a sex addict because I watch porn, you know, X amount of times a week, I start checking in with them about, well, what do you consider too much? And then we start going into maybe their background. Like, does it have to do, is it influenced by religion? Is it influenced by their partner not wanting them to look at this imagery? Or messages from their mom about anything. There's so many variables that leave a legacy on how women's relationship with their own bodies, with pornography, with imagery, with erotica. With It's loaded, definitely loaded. Right. And there's also a myth of women not watching pornography, which is 
false. I was looking at a few different studies and around 30% of women watch pornography once a week. It also deeply affects body image. Right. Not just for women, but in terms of what men expect, how men expect women to look and respond to. So it, it cuts across both. Yeah, it does. And it also, you know, just little things like I have women coming in saying I have a sexual problem because I make certain sounds. And it's because they have never seen women make sounds. <laughs> right. Or I treat a woman now who is a so-called squirter. And one of her past lovers said, you know, that it was disgusting and that he needed to shower and really shamed her for that. And then on the other hand, you have guys who are wanting and demanding that their partners have that female ejaculation. So it really, it really depends on both parties and their comfort and expectations. Yeah. And so women coming in, basically what that would look like is some a woman coming in and either saying, you know, I watch too much pornography or I keep altering my body because I feel like it doesn't match what it should. Are you talking like cosmetic surgery? Oh, yeah. I've or, uh, women who are yeah. bleaching their vaginas and, and vulvas yeah. and, and, anuses. and anuses. Yes. I haven't had anyone actually have surgery yet, but I have heard of it. Yeah. I've had a lot of women have surgery. Mm -hmm. The so-called revirginization or rejuvenation surgery. Right. Right. Usually that's around, those would be the out of control thoughts, just this rumination of I'm broken or there's something wrong with me. The next point would be economic parity. So now that women are definitely starting to make more money and sometimes even more than their partners, they're the role reversal. And it really throws the sexual piece of the relationship for a loop. So women historically have had less of a choice around what they wanted sexually and who they wanted sexually and whether or not they wanted to stay in the marriage or partnership because of who was making money. And now that women, you know, like a woman will be married, she will, will or will not have a child, but let's say she has a child, the child goes to school, she goes back to work, and then realizes that she wants something and there's not really a match with her partner. She is no longer as dependent on that person financially. That shifts the power dynamic. Absolutely. And so sometimes that can look like the partner thinking that she has a sexual problem or out of control behavior if she's choosing something other than the partner, than, than her partner, because now that she has this power to make that choice. I've treated a lot of men who feel emasculated because their wife or female partner earns more money than they do. And it affects their capacity to complete the phases of sexual response. So it's, it's a projection. It's, it's an internal sense of inadequacy that they then blame the wife for, or they withhold sex to try to regain the up position. As I'm talking about all of these, I'm just wanting to like reiterate that this is, these are just the ways that women may internalize what they think is out of control behavior when they come in. You're wanting to depathologize assumptions that women have about their sexual behavior and feelings, but do you 
find that there are women who you would say are legitimately out of control with their sexual behavior and it's not based on these four hallmark criteria that you've put out? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So it's really about teasing out and differentiating what is based on these cultural stereotypes versus an actual problematic situation. Right. I mean, I just want to, before we even go into the out of control behaviors themselves, I want to make sure that it's not about this internalized gender stereotype. The fourth point is kind of, I I haven't really been able to flesh this one out, but it's kind of like the catch-all for female sexuality and just intersectionality. So this is how female sexuality intersects with so many other variables and um, how it may present in the room. And we're talking race, sexual orientation, financial privilege, able-bodiedness, and body type. It's a great list. Yeah. Well, it's just, I'm really trying to figure out a way to label this or name this section still. So that is the work in progress. I was doing some consulting with clinicians who work with intersectionality. And specifically, I was talking about race and a good point was brought up about history of women and slavery. Does a woman of color even own her own body? And that as like this deep, deep underlying potential narrative. And how is it lingered in the minds of women of color and women of color, perhaps not even being able afforded the opportunity to think about sex as pleasure because they've lived in survival mode. And then from an OCSB perspective, this is how is this um, sexual behavior an attempt to address one of these intersectionalities? It might be like a self-made treatment plan, you know, that's just not working. How do you incorporate, if at all, affect regulation and attachment style into your work? Oh, it's deeply, deeply integrated. So I was in a study group for a, a period of time with Alan Shore. And he does the modern attachment theory, which is the interpersonal neurobiology of attachment. So I definitely work from a base of the family of origin, lays down a physiological as well as a environmental template of how we relate to other people. Even explaining that much to a client can be a light bulb. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I very much work with attachment styles and then regulating and grounding around when you're trying to build space between thought and behavior. It just manifests sexually because if you think about how, if the family of origin lays down this template physiologically, well, you're sexual throughout your entire life. Exactly. You know, and so as you develop and then you go in and you hit puberty and you're still developing sexually and you still have that template with attachment. And so it's just going to develop. It's just going to become more apparent sexually. If I have ruled out all of these these points that I've mentioned, and it really does appear that this client is struggling and with out-of-control sexual behavior, I explain this what's called the six principles of sexual health. Um, That's and the... That, Harvey six. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Correct. That's what Michael Vigarito and Doug Harvey came up with. And in these six principles are based on 
the WHO, World Health Organization, a definition of what is sexual health. And so they took these principles. And the first is consent, which is just straightforward. Are both partners experiencing the sex without coercion or violence? And then the second principle is non-exploitative, meaning does one of these people have, uh, or multiple people in the relationship have, Mm -hmm. um, are they all feeling as equal partners? You know, one person is not holding any kind of emotional power and exploiting that power, or it's not a a boss employee situation. You know, it's, it really feels equal and it's respectful and affirming. The third principle is protection from STIs, HIV and pregnancy. So this goes back to this idea of, is the person protecting themselves, i.e., are they using condoms if they're both in agreement on using condoms, or are they not using a condom because they want to keep their partner, and their partner doesn't like the way it feels? Which is a form of coercion. Right. Yeah. Correct. And exploitation. And <laughs> exploitation, <laughs> yes. It clicks the consent and the exploitation box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of these um, out of control feelings, thoughts and behaviors uh, go through, uh, you know, really hit a few of these different principles. The fourth is honesty. Are you and whoever you're in this relationship with in the same relationship? You know, are you are you open about your desires, fantasies, feelings in, to enjoy this, this sex and the intimacy. Yeah. And your status, like maybe you're married <laughs> to someone mm-hmm. else. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And are you being honest about it? Cause there's, there are open marriages. The fifth is shared values. What does sex mean to you as opposed to the person you're having sex with and conflicting attitudes, desire discrepancy, and then mutual pleasure. Are you truly enjoying what you're doing? Or are you trying to fulfill the needs of the relationship? So if someone wanted to learn more about you, how would they get a hold of you, Jess? Well, you can check out my website. It's east-baytherapy.com. So E-A-S-T-B-A-Y therapy.com. And that not only is it, you know, that does that talk about what I do, but it's also got links to some really good resources. Wonderful. I would also say if you're a clinician and or if you're just interested in what out of control sexual behavior is, I totally want to plug Doug and Michael's book. It's called Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sexual Addiction. Wonderful. It's just a fabulous book. And I think I I have a couple of things on YouTube from a long time ago. And I want to just own that, you know, when I made those videos, I was still very much steeped in the 12-step model. And so I think that it's important as a clinician to be able to to own that, you know, you you shift. Of course, we're all developing all the time our views are the theories that make sense to us, the models we utilize that, you know, over time. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, there are still pieces of those videos that I actually agree with. And I still find really fascinating. And even in those videos, I'm talking about the attachment piece of it, you know, which I still very much feel is important. I ask all of my guests, at the end of the interview, what is the most meaningful or fulfilling aspect of their work? 
what would you, how would you answer that? I think normalizing for me, you know, just people that come in and they're so distraught around these fundamental pieces of human behavior, you know, sex and sexuality is such a, a right and a healthy sexuality and an enjoyable, pleasurable sexuality is a right, you know, of everybody. And I think to normalize that when they're having conflict, people have conflict with their own identity and with their own sexuality. And that's okay. And we can talk about this and you're not alone. That validation is so therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and creating the attachment in the room so that the room is like a Petri dish and then they can take it and then go experiment on the outside. Well, thank you so much, Jess Levin, for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And best of luck with your concepts. And I look forward to the book that you publish. (laughs) One day. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.